0: I don't know anything about basketball. These are people who have worked all their lives at it. I cannot tell which center is better than the other center. I have no ability to tell You could show me a basketball player that's 50% better than another, or 100% better than another basketball player. If they're both professionals, I would have no way to tell, if I don't know their records, their statistics, I would have no way to tell who is better with my eye, because I'm not an expert. But... If someone always, you know, makes a shoot by throwing underhanded at the hoop and he's always making it, I'm watching that guy. Or if another guy just dunks with these amazing like backflips every time, I'm watching that guy. So I can always tell you who's different. I have no way to tell you who's better.
1: This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow we help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you figure out what does and make it happen we help you define the work that's unapologetically you and then go get it
0: if you're ready to make a change keep listening here's scott here's scott here's scott
1: if you've listened to this podcast for more than 17 seconds you've probably noticed i'm fascinated with top performance behaviors One area we find a rather small collection of top performers is in looking at billionaires. Today on the podcast, we're going to look at billionaire habits, behaviors, mindsets, learnings. I have with me for this interview, someone who is a top performer in his own right. He started 20 businesses, 17 of them failing. He's the author of several books, including a national bestseller called Choose Yourself, He has not one, but two podcasts. He's a trader, investor, writer, entrepreneur, but most importantly, he's the only other person that I've met besides myself that's over the age of 22 that runs upstairs. This is my conversation with James Altucher. I don't even... I was trying to think as I was prepping for the interview this week, how I actually came across your work. And I think it was a friend of mine, Matt McWilliams, who does all kinds of affiliate work. But uh, I think somehow he had shared something four or five years ago. But ever since then, I have loved your perspective. So that's part of the reason why I'm excited for this conversation. But we're talking to an entire group of folks that they're fairly far into their career, you know, 15, 20 years in, and something's happened in their life that's caused them to wake up and look differently. So,
0: I actually like what? L- tell, tell me some of the things. Any, that any one talking. of
1: 15, 16 different events. So, they might have had a health scare. Their parents might have had a health scare. They had another child in some cases. They have had a layoff. They have, you know, been gunning for the goal that they've had for 15 years. Like, you know, I'm going to be a VP of this particular organization, they became a VP. Now they've been doing it for five years, and it's not all that they thought it was going to be. So,
0: Or, or they didn't get that VP job. Or they or, didn't. You yes, know.
1: that's the other side of it too.
0: Yeah. What's funny is, and by the way, I'm fascinated about the idea that there's 15 things that could be so life-altering, you suddenly wake up and say, huh, I'm not sure... There's a lot of ways you could, think. You, could you could say to yourself, yeah. I might have made a mistake and I'm about to get depressed about it, or you could say, you know what, this is a wake-up call that it's time to do something different. What should I do? And there's two directions. One is I could do something for the money or I could do something I've always wanted to do but I was afraid I wouldn't make money at it, or you could do some combination. You could say, well, I've always wanted to do X, but I'm going to figure out also how to make I never thought I could make money at X, but now there's so many opportunities in the world, maybe I can. So I'm interested in basketball, but I'm 45 years old. I'm never going to be a professional basketball player. But maybe there's something I can create or invent or write about or do or podcast about or YouTube about or TikTok about or create that will make me money with my interest. And I think, I think there's a lot of fascinating things happening right now. By the way, people think it's only now, but you can go back hundreds of years and still find ways to monetize your interests, but there's just different ways now.
1: So what's an example of that? I'm super curious.
0: Here's a fascinating example. In the 1920s, there was this guy, I'm sorry, I don't have his name right in front of me. I've written about him, but I, I forget his name. This guy wanted to be a book publisher, but it's not that, there was like five publishers, kind of the same publishers that exist now. And you know it was hard to break that into, into that business and get in bookstores and get people to notice what you're doing. And he loved books, he loved writing books. So I will skip to the end of the story and then describe how the story happens. So this is in the 1920s. Yeah. He sold over 100 million books. And 100 million, like this is not a trivial amount. And, and this is not the internet. This is not Amazon, Kindle. These aren't eBooks. He sold actual, 100 million plus actual books. And what they were, they're called the Little Blue Books. And so he took every major book ever written and like Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist. And he'll basically summarize it or or he'll rewrite it in 60 pages and he, he would put it in this tiny little book like the size of your hand yeah. and he'd put a blue cover all the covers look the same it would just be the title and he'd call them the little blue books and a hundred million copies of these little blue books were sold. And then he would make up books. Like he'd write books like, you know, manners for teenagers in the 20th century or relationship advice for married couples. And then he, so he would do some of his own kind of self helpish sort of books, but then he'll have the Bible in 60 pages. And again, a hundred million. And he would test, he would do a B testing. Okay. This title sold more than 10,000 copies. So let's make more of this topic. And this one only sold 2,000 copies. So let's stop printing it and not do that topic anymore. So he did what we would call today modern A-B testing, but he was doing it then and then doubling down on what titles worked and he would eliminate the titles that didn't work. And through this process, sold 100 million copies of books. Again, something we would dream of in the modern internet day. Like, oh, I would love to have 100 million views on my YouTube videos, but he was doing it before there was any digital technology at all. And that's just one example.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I feel like if he can do it then, then we have no excuse now whatsoever. No excuse. (laughs) Right. There's just so much more available that lowers the barriers to doing that exact thing. I mean, literally at fingertips within minutes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there are people who do it like, like I can give you an outline that's general enough that everybody listening could write a book using this outline and everyone will write a different book and you could write a book within two weeks to 30 days. And I kind of, as an exercise for myself, come up with these outlines and hand them to people and people are writing these books in 30 days. There's lots of ways to generate, or you could do a YouTube video about, you know, revolving around one of these outlines, or you could do a podcast or whatever. It's it's not really the content that allows you to create it's your ability to tell a good story and to be both entertaining and informational and to say something that no one else has said before in this particular way so you stand out and you're different and then you ab test well what's working and what isn't for your podcast for instance does having a guest on work does having a guest with higher social media work or do does your audience just want to listen to you and you should just rant about your favorite topics like these are all things you can and should Test, for instance, and then you know what what will work and what doesn't, and you start building more audience.
1: I am on the subject of uniqueness and also the doing things completely in different ways. I'm super curious because I think you've done a great job of this. I don't think this is a case where you're speaking from inexperience whatsoever, or you've just rattled off these outlines and then you're just giving them to people. I think a lot of this is coming from experience in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. But on that level, what do you think, what do you feel like when you're talking about that uniqueness, uh, my words, not yours, but you know, doing things differently, doing things that work for you, what has been some of the biggest learnings around what works for you or even how to think about that differently?
0: Well, I think the key word is differently. So it's better to be different than to be better. So let's take you know, you and any other business related podcast that you're interested in. You might listen to that and say, huh, that guy's got a really large audience, but I feel like I'm a 20, no knock on this other guy, but I feel like I'm a 20% better interviewer. I could see things in his interview style where I would do it a little differently. And I feel I have higher qualities as an interviewer. So how's he getting his audience? And that's a good question to ask, but it's almost the wrong question. Because the average listener, just because they're not doing podcasts, they're not in the weeds with interviewing, they're they're busy running their own life, they can't tell the difference between 20% better and not 20% better. Like when I'm watching basketball, and I see not one of the greats, but I see two different centers playing basketball games. I don't know anything about basketball. These are people who have worked all their lives at it. I cannot tell which center is better than the other center. I have no ability to tell. You could show me a basketball player that's 50% better than another or 100% better than another basketball player. If they're both professionals, I would have no way to tell. If I don't know their records, their statistics, I would have no way to tell who is better with my eye because I'm not an expert. But if someone always shoots, you know, makes a shoot by throwing underhanded at the hoop and he's always making it, I'm watching that guy. Or if another guy just dunks with these amazing like backflips every time, I'm watching that guy. So I can always tell you who's different. I have no way to tell you who's better. So it's very important when you're thinking about any kind of story or content or platform or the way you're gonna attack a platform or even if you're gonna be an entrepreneur or what I call an entrepreneur, someone who's entrepreneurial at the workplace, it's very important to just n- to not be better but to also be you don't have to worry about better you have to worry about being different and of course you don't want to be horrible you have to being different is an experiment and you that's where the testing comes in but i'm always trying to think how can i be different from other people so with my writing for instance i've been writing since 1990 every single day now for the first 12 years of that i was very unpublished like i was writing horrible stuff but you but that's how you learn you read and you write and you learn and then Even when I started writing, my first writing gigs were very different from what I write now, right? Right now I write more kind of motivational or I write like narrative nonfiction about my life and hard things and horrible things that I've gone through and how I've gotten out of them. And some people view that as motivational, but it's really just me telling stories about my life. But I originally would write about stocks or finance and- even then, I was very important for me to tell a story. Other people would say, well, this has a low P-E ratio, but the moving average is going above the other moving average, and they would just be very dry, boring articles, and that was 99.9% of the articles in the finance space. And I would tell a whole story about, you know, this is like 2002, 2003, I would tell this unique story about a Steve Jobs experience, maybe even a Steve Jobs experience that I had, and through that, tell the story of why I think this is company is special, why this article needed to be written, why this article needed to be written now, why this article needed to be written by me specifically. And it was through that that I developed a voice that people could understand and relate to and then, you know, and be persuaded by for better or for worse. And so then I, uh, you know, there, there got a point where I was like, oh, no one's life is going to get improved by... Learning about another stock or finance or whatever. So that's when I started writing about my failures, all the things that have gone wrong in my life, like just losing everything, going bankrupt a bunch of times and losing this, losing that. And it almost got too much, you know, me just losing all the time and then coming back from it. But I had a lot of those stories, unfortunately. And I found that was much more important to people. And I was writing much, much better, much more high quality stuff, at least I thought. And it was very different because at that time, no one was writing in that sort of failure, self-help-ish kind of genre. And I was combining sort of memoir with self-help and being very vulnerable about it. And now I think a lot of people are doing this 10 years after I started writing in that way. But you know, at that time I thought it was very different. And people would even tell me that they would call me like, Hey, are you okay? Are you about to kill yourself? And you're just kind of confessing to everything or people would, another (laughs) woman I knew who was a CEO of a company. She was like, I heard you had a a stroke or a brain tumor. What, what happened? And that was kind of the typical or another person would tweet after one of my original articles in this style, you know, reading James Altucher's posts is like we're watching a train wreck in real time. And that's what I wanted was to kind of create something where I was even afraid of what I was writing because then I would know it was different. If I was afraid, then I knew it was different. If I wasn't afraid, that would mean, oh, I've seen this before here, here, and here, so this should be okay. That was no good because it's already been written before. So that's why I wouldn't be afraid. I don't even go on stage with with a talk, for instance, unless I'm afraid of what people are going to say about me at, by the end of that talk.
1: So let me ask you about that because I think that is... A really good measure of whether or not you're leaning into your uniqueness and pushing the boundaries, whether or not you're at least a little bit afraid, whether you know whatever you're doing, whether it's writing or speaking or you know any aspect of even a job, right? And I'm curious how you came to that, how you started recognizing that that's should be a measure for yourself in any way. Is there a story behind that? Speaking of stories,
0: yeah, I think a lot of it is to approach a topic not from So let's say top-down is, let's say you want to write about World War II, or let's say you want to write about the presidential election. There's a top-down approach, which is let's analyze the facts and make a logical conclusion. And, and, you know, there's a beginning and middle, like the beginning is here are the candidates. The middle is here's what's going on. The conclusion is, you know, your logical conclusion based on the facts you just presented. So that's like top-down. Bottom-up is very different. Bottom up is I'm a writer, so I'm going to study the greatest writers of all time and really kind of reverse engineer what they've done and really think about it and really study writing as an art form or podcasting or YouTubing or sales presentations or even you know ways of asking for a promotion or a raise at work or whatever. And then I'm going to find what I love writing about, what I love talking about, and that's what I'm going to write. And so I'm going I'm to try to develop skill in storytelling and have my own unique voice in it. Because as you develop skills, you figure out what's uniquely you. And then you find what's interesting to you. And that's what you write about. And when you do that, you have to write about it fearlessly, like, you know, unafraid of what people will think. And, you know, using that writing skill you've developed bottom up, you're going to create something unique. And I think that works really well. Like Before I hit publish on anything, whether it's a uh, not so much a podcast, but definitely with writing, and I try to do it more and more with, with podcasts, but I really ask myself, am I afraid of what people will think once I hit publish? And if the answer is yes, I definitely hit publish. If the answer is no, I keep rewriting until I feel that fear.
1: I love that for so many reasons. I... <laughs> I have found myself using that, but I like how you're putting it and I'm going to, I'm actually, I'm in the midst of writing something right now. So it's, (laughs) I have not pushed publish on it. So it's making me think of that.
0: And by the way, I'm curious about what you're writing about, but I just want to add quickly, a lot of people also take controversial stances just to have a controversial stance because they know that will attract more followers and likes and, and all these things. And I don't really mean that. I don't, I don't mean try to find a stance that you know will be controversial. Try to find your stance that's your opinion. And it, you don't really want it to be controversial. You want people to agree with you and change everyone's mind. But of course, that never happens. It turns out to be controversial. But it should innately start with you feeling passionate about it. And you know it's different from what people think. And you think because of your ability you'll be able to convince people, but of course that never happens. I see too many people trying to be controversial rather than trying to say what they really mean. But I'm curious, what, what are you writing about?
1: I'm writing about the opportunity cost of not investing in yourself. So, ah, uh, yeah, been, great topic. Love this topic. Been, you know, felt really passionate about this topic for many years. However, I've also found it really difficult to find lots of data and research around. Yeah, you know, what people are willing to share about uh, investing in themselves. There's tons of stuff out right. there about you know college degrees and blah 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 blah. However, there's not a lot about when it's self-driven development and what that actually translates to in, I guess, on the hard side, dollars, but on another side, like quality of life.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think you need that much data. No, but because here's the thing too: storytelling trumps data. Everyone, when I read an article or when I read a book that's informational, yeah. I'll remember, and this is not a low or a high statistic, this is the real statistic, I, I think, and asked a lot of people about this, how much do you remember of a nonfiction book? And for me, it's probably one or 2%. Like, I'll remember one or two quotes from an entire 300-page book and maybe one or two facts, but I'll remember stories though as well I'll remember there might be 40 pages of story and I'll remember the rough outline of that story that's told so people remember in stories they don't remember really in facts unless they're like really you know outstanding amazing facts or information even then they might forget but like what you're talking about is a fascinating topic so you look at the way I would think about it is like and I'm gonna totally steal your idea now <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Which is, by the way, we'll tell tell it in different ways anyway, but but, but I've written about some of these things in a case by case, but what are the ways people don't invest themselves? Well, they invest in the stock market. They invest in a college degree. They invest in owning a home. They invest in- a car, or they invest in expensive vacations or collectibles or whatever. And you could just start with your personal stories. What have you invested in in life that turned out to not work out so well for you? And then you could kind of just fluff it with some data like, oh, you know, college, this happened to me, and now I never use my degree. And by the way, one out of two college graduates take degrees that don't even require a college degree. Boom. And now, you know, your kind of conclusion is, Hey, I've got this podcast, which is so much fun, has improved my quality of life. I've met so many listeners and guests, and I've been part of this podcast community. And it's so exciting to be on the frontier of where storytelling is. And, you know, and here's where I'm starting to monetize it. And, you know, and then you give the exact details of how much money, and I and you say, I know it's not a lot yet, but it's been growing. Here's the chart. And boom, now you have this, you've just told a bunch of stories. No one could argue with you on your opinions because they're your stories and And then you have a few facts to back each one, but you don't have to go overboard doing an academic study.
1: so here's the direction that I ended up taking it, which I'm feeling a lot better about now because I was apprehensive about it for a variety of different reasons, just sharing. So I actually took my own income and you know chart like we'll literally put it on a chart. Uh, from high school through, uh, I don't know, I think my seventh seventh year into uh, what I would call a professional career, right? So- Love this. And then- Well, you see these massive jumps and essentially, you know, jump after jump, after jump, after jump. But what uh, what that chart doesn't tell that go into is the fact that I spent my first five, five years in in college uh, where, you know, I spent, I don't know, probably three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, learning to run my second business. I guess it would have been. Well, I was in school. And technically only made like, I think it was twenty or $30,000 that year, but I spent, you know, $300,000 plus investing in the idea of learning to run a business and learning how to interact with people and learning how to hire and fire and all of those things that go along with it. And then later on, years later, you start to see the jumps from that, which is how investments work, right?
0: Oh my God. I love this so much for a lot of reasons. One is People think a traditional story is something happens to me and then I deal with the problems and, you know, finally I solve them and now I'm telling the story. And that's the kind of classic arc, you know, very simplified version of the arc of the hero. Absolutely. But what you did is you take a common nonfiction structure, which is basically almost like an Excel spreadsheet of your salary, and you basically tell a story, your, your life story through this nonfiction structure that has nothing to do with writing. So for instance, imagine a waiter uh, writing about all his experiences in the restaurant business through the orders of the customers. So chapter one is this 16 person birthday party and he writes down this full order, but then he's able to tell the story of like what everybody said to him and the conversations he's overheard. But you're seeing each story and his experiences and his learning as a waiter through all these Waiters' pad orders. and so that's another nonfiction, weird nonfiction structure that tells a story. So you're basically taking and you I love this so much, I, this I actually might steal. You're basically taking your income from high school on and like almost like in a spreadsheet. and that, but now but there's a story behind each number, like, okay, when I was sixteen, I made forty seven dollars a week. Well, I was a paper boy, and I was a paper boy because I liked this one girl on my paper route. I would always ask her out. She always said, no, here's some exactly. other things that happen. how I would get bigger tips. And now you're 18. Okay, you're in college. You get a job helping people figure out Microsoft Word in the computer rooms or whatever, and on and on and on. And so we see your evolution as a human, but we're also fascinated because you're being, you're, you, the way you're being really different is you're using this unusual nonfiction structure and you're being very vulnerable. You're telling the exact numbers. So for instance, and people are are love that because- like one time, I wrote about an article, how to self publish. I wrote an article about self publishing 3.0. I talked about how to, prof- what I called professionally self publish. And it wasn't just like a how to, like do this, do this, do this, do this. It was like my story around this book, Choose Yourself, I wrote in 2013. And I documented all the money I spent and all the money I made so people could know the exact numbers. So I gave people, what happens when you do that is you give people many reasons to like your story. So maybe people liked the story itself, or maybe people liked learning how to professionally self-publish, or maybe people liked that I gave the exact numbers away. You're kind of giving many avenues for people to like the story, and that's really important as well, and that's what using these kind of unusual structures does for you. So One time I wrote a story, and I used, rather than just writing a LinkedIn article, I actually wrote it as a Kickstarter project, and I put it on Kickstarter, to try to raise money. Ooh, and so, it. so it was, uh, you have not only the the reasons for the Kickstarter, but then I have all the tiers for the different award, you know, the, yeah. you know, the different yeah. awards you get for each tier. So all that becomes part of the story. And it's, again, it's an unusual structure. Nobody really thinks of Kickstarter as a way to tell a story, but I used it that way. And it got more shares than my usual article on LinkedIn, for instance.
1: Okay. So here's what I'm curious about then. Hey, we've talked a lot about story, I'm getting a ton out of this personally, because it's making me think of 47 different things that I'm going to go back and do differently with this particular piece of writing. However, you mentioned editing right at the front end of our conversation. And I have, I've seen you mention or heard you mention editing in a variety of different formats. In the context earlier, we were talking about, you know, you said something like, I try and do as little editing as possible, but I've, I've become for podcasts. for podcasts in particular, but uh, I, I've become really fascinated with this idea of editing or maybe through the lens of you know removing until
0: it's great or until it's uh, fantastic. Right. And, I, and, and by the way, this is a great topic. I've never talked about it. So it's very interesting because I think it means something different for each medium. But go ahead.
1: Well, here's what it makes me curious. Uh, you know, I... You have probably been doing, I'm guessing, a lot of talks and interviews on billionaire habits and mindset and all kinds of things like that lately. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I, I recently did again. This was an experiment, Scribd, which is like the yeah. Netflix of books. They yeah. have like two million subscribers. You could you pay a monthly fee, you read millions of books. They wanted to do original content, just like Netflix does original content. Sure. So I wrote a book, Think Like a Billionaire, which became one of the first Scribd exclusive Scribd originals.
1: So what I'm curious about is through that lens of editing, you know, what what do billionaires actually cut out of their lives rather than, I think there's a billion other questions that people ask about billionaires, but what what do you find that people that are billionaires cut out of their lives?
0: yeah that's a good question, and it's interesting because again, like I said, editing is different on each medium, whether you're podcasting, making a TV show, making, sure. writing a book, and so writing a public talk. But thinking of editing in terms of the context of habits in life is is very interesting. So I would say what they cut is thinking, not that they edit their thoughts, but they set up systems in place so they have to think about much fewer things than the average person. So I'll give you an example. Ken Langone. Ken Langone's worth somewhere between three and 10 billion. Okay. It's hard to always figure out what these guys are worth, but he's the founder of Home Depot. That's where he's made most of his billions. And he, um, a very charitable guy. He, uh, uh, almost every hospital in New York city is named after him. Every medical student in New York city, I believe has their tuition paid by him. He's very, very, he's given billions to charity. And, um, and you know, Home Depot itself also you know has 300,000 employees, and so he's created a, an enormous number of jobs. But in the 60s, Home Depot didn't exist yet. He was a banker. He was a small banker. He had a very tiny investment bank, not like Goldman Sachs or something. And there was a young man in Dallas named Ross Perot who had a computer reseller company called EDS. Ross Perot wanted to take this company public on the New York Stock Exchange, and Ken Langone and Goldman Sachs were competing against each other for the deal. Ken Langone built up a good relationship with Ross Perot, but Goldman Sachs was Goldman Sachs, was the biggest and still is the biggest investment bank. So Ross Perot calls up Ken Langone one morning and says, Ken, you know, I'm not going to imitate Ross's Texan accent, but <laughs> Ken, you're a great guy. I love you. Let's do a deal together in the future. But I got to go with Goldman Sachs. They're the biggest in the world. They'll do. They'll they'll really help the stock. It'll, it'll be good for me and good for my employees and so on. And Ken Langone said, Ross, what are you doing for lunch today? And Ross is like, Ken, you're in New York City. I'm in Dallas. How are you going to meet me for lunch? And Ken said, just meet me at so-and-so place at one o'clock. I'll see you then. And Ken just goes straight to, gets off the phone, goes straight to the airport and gets on a plane and goes to meet Ross Perot for lunch. They have a great lunch. Ken gets the deal. And that's basically how he made his first millions. Okay, not billion, but millions, which was great for him. He was a young guy. So what that story told me though was his team, he, you know, he was running a company, his, his small investment bank. His team was so solid and so up on how to run the business, not just him, but but the whole tier underneath him that he could just pick up and not even think about it, go straight to the airport, maybe even bring a couple of his team members who were completely up on the deal, get on a plane, fly to Dallas, meet Ross Perot. So he doesn't have to think about his, he edits out all the thoughts about his business other than the one thing he needed to focus on that day, which was winning the deal with Ross Perot. The next thing was, and it's not as obvious, his wife. He gets, it's not like we had cell phones, he gets immediately, he's in Dallas before he could even give her a call and say, honey, I might not be back for dinner, (laughs) I'm in Dallas. And so he had to know that his relationship was so solid with his wife that she trusted him, he trusted her. She supported him fully. She knew that, okay, he's doing this, so I might have to do, I might have to pick up the kids or do this or do that or or whatever. He might not come back tonight, but that doesn't mean he's fooling around or anything. I I trust him. So he he kind of had his, his life in shape. So he never had to think about things that a lot of people would normally have to think about. Like if I were in his place, I might have to say to Ross, Ross, I can't do it. I got a team meeting later that's really important. Or I've got a customer meeting later that I can't cancel or, you know, I've got to take my wife out to dinner, it's her birthday, which maybe that's me and that's that's why I'm not a billionaire and and maybe I don't want to be one. But it's interesting to see their habits. They are very, very focused on what they're doing and any other thought that, that gets in the way of that, they firm up their life in such a way that they don't have to think those thoughts. Another example is, I'll give Sarah Blakely as an example. Yeah. She's the founder of Spanx, multi-billion dollar company. That's the undergarments that you know make your waist tighter and so on. Millions of women either use Spanx or know what Spanx is. And uh, Sarah's very nice, also charitable woman. And she was selling fax machines door to door and coming up with the idea. She didn't know anything about fashion. So that's another thing that they edited out. They edited out this, this idea of, I can't do this. I'm not a professional. So so that that idea never exists. So she was not a professional fashion designer, but never once, and a lot of people would tell her, well, actually not a lot of people because she didn't even tell the idea to many people because she didn't want to be told, you can't do that, you're not a professional. So she wouldn't even share the idea to a lot of people. But the thought that she wasn't a professional did not factor into her decision-making at all. So she goes out and she makes one or two versions of her Spanx. She, she demonstrates it to people, like she demonstrated it to Neiman Marcus, and they said, this is great. Can you make $300,000 worth of this? And the first thing she said was, yes, I can. <laughs> now, she <laughs> yes. only had three versions. And by the way, try to find, if you're a nobody, if, if you're a door-to-door fax machine salesman, try to find a manufacturer who's gonna make, and you have no money try to find a manufacturer who's going to make $300,000 worth of your product for you. You can't do it. So, but she didn't have the word can't as one of her thoughts. And so of course she says, if you don't think, oh no, I can't do this. Then of course you won't say yes to a $300,000 order. By the way, I may be off on the number, but it's roughly that. And then she, she had two or three months to deliver the order. She spent the entire time traveling around trying to find a factory. She found one that took a chance on her. Some way or other, she either borrowed or financed the money to pay the the factory. She, She figured out after she said yes, how to do that part. And she delivered the order, got the money, paid everyone, and boom, Spanx officially started. After eight years after she had her idea, she was still selling fax machines door to door. So that's another thing. They don't think that they can't do something. Because here's, what's the worst case? She says yes to Neiman Marcus and she tries and she fails. And then she learns something and then she moves on. Uh, That's the worst case. It's not really a bad worst case. It's kind of a fun worst case. Oh, I'm going to try to do something no one's ever done before. And then if I fail from it, the worst case is I'm going to learn from it. That's her worst case. But if she says, oh no, I can't do it. Her worst case is she's still selling fax machines door to door and she learned nothing from the experience. So... I think that's another thing they edit out is, you know, I, I call this the ready fire aim approach. Aiming would be, well, I can't do this until I raise money, until I make, you know, have an inventory and in a warehouse and I find the factory. That's aiming. Um, firing is yes, I could do it. Now I'm gonna figure out how to do it. And that's kind of true in almost every single billionaire story. Those those two stories of of Ken Langone and Sarah Blakely are kind of very common stories in every billionaire I've invented. And by the way, they're not common stories among millionaires or entrepreneurs. They're, they're very common among billionaires, but not just entrepreneurs or you know even 10, 20 millionaires, and I'm not putting 10, 20 millionaires down. That's a huge amount of money, but it's just a different set of habits. That's it's really better- interesting. Why, why do you think that is? Well, because you can create a Me Too kind of business not a hashtag MeToo business, I might add, but just a me too kind of business. Yeah. And it will do very well. Like I could buy a laundromat and then I can use, I can build it up by, you know, modernizing the washing machines. And then I'll have the cash flow to go to a bank and buy another laundromat. And now I'll consolidate my accounting costs uh, uh, across multiple laundromats and improve my cash flows for each one. Now I could buy another laundromat. And when I have 20 or 30 laundromats, I could sell them for a big amount because. I don't want to get into the weeds of how you, how you sell something, but I can, I can sell these laundries for a big amount and I'll have, let's say five or $6 million in the bank. And I could retire if I want or start another business. So that doesn't require, you know, anybody can start a me too business and follow a very direct, simple path for making $1 million or, or, or $3 million or $5 million. And I'm not saying it's easy, but that's a very normal path to making a million dollars. And you don't need to have a lot of systems in place to do that, like in the Ken Langone example, or you don't need to over, you know, have this ready-fire aim approach to doing that. There's very known methods for for doing these things. And there's nuances there. I say there's very known methods. It's not that easy, but it's doable. Like I could tell you how to do it. And you know, and that's only one example of, of making, like my first business, I knew how to make websites in the early nineties. As soon as the web was developed, I learned how to make websites within a week of the first web server being launched. So as corporations decided they needed to make websites, I knew how to do it. And maybe there were five or six other people in New York city who knew how to do it. So my first business was like every, all these other five or six people set up their first business. Hey, let's make websites for corporations that need it. My business was not really different from the others and maybe I was better, but again, the average customer couldn't tell. So I competed on price because I directly knew how to make every part of a website. I was able to compete better on price. I had fewer employees, at least in the beginning. And then I found my own Niche, which was I did a lot of enter websites for a lot of entertainment companies. So that made me a little different from everyone else. But again, I was a Me Too business. I should have been thinking what can make me really different and ready, fire, aim as opposed to just doing what everyone else does, which is kind of creating a modern ad agency as opposed to doing something really new. I, I think new with the internet, you know, started a few years later with e-commerce and then with, you know, software tools where the average consumer can make their own website without knowing how to program. And I think I think that's what a few years later, things became very different.
1: Well, aside from Ready, Fire, Aim, what else do you feel like you've learned that billionaires do differently? Or maybe even actually a better question would be, you've, you've been getting a ton of these questions about, uh, about billionaires. So what do you feel like people are not asking about billionaires that they should be asking?
0: Well, I think, first off, why did I write the book. Yeah. So I didn't write the book because I wanted to glorify billionaires. And you know, I mentioned Canlin Gone and, and Sarah Blakely are both very charitable. There are other billionaires that are not charitable. And, you know, it's just like any human beings, you know, money tends to not make you better, but it sort of magnifies who you are. And so if you're charitable and a kind person to begin with, money's going to make you very charitable and very kind and very interesting and very creative. And if you're kind of a mean person, having a billion dollars might make you more mean. Now, again, because of the things I've described earlier, I tend to think billionaires are more likely to be creative and have this ready-fire aim approach and have good relationships so you know to, to kind of support all the systems they have in place. But that might just be the billionaires I interviewed and maybe I avoided the ones that were different from that. But I wrote this because I felt like for many years I had really bad habits. Like I would you know, start a business like that first one I described, Yeah, I'd sell it, I'd make money. And then for some reason, not for some reason, but I would get into very bad habits and I'd lose all the money. And this happened to me three, four, five times in a row where I would just get so crushed and so depressed and so sad that, you know, I'd be trying to provide for my family and I would think I finally, I've done it. And I just would fail after making money. Not failing at making the money, although I've done that too, but failing at once I made the money, holding on to it. And I'm like, well, what what is going wrong? So one of the things I did among many to kind of figure myself out was interview peak performers. And for this purposes of this book, you know, I've interviewed over five hundred and forty people for my podcast and over the past seven years. And, you know, maybe two or three dozen of them happen to have been billionaires. And I kind of compiled what I learned about these billionaires, I'm not trying to, again, glorify and say, oh, billionaires are great, blah, blah, blah. I personally wanted to learn from them some of these habits. But I think one question that has come up a lot in the news, not necessarily towards me, is, well, do billionaires deserve it? Like, you know, AOC, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman, she said, and by the way, I'm politically neutral on her. She lives right near where I live. Or well, the biggest zip code that raised money for her was the zip code I live in. Yeah. And you know, she said recently, billionaires don't earn money, they take it. And another person... So that that's an interesting statement, that, that basically it's impossible to earn a billion dollars. And depending on your model of economics, if you work by the hour and get paid by the hour, then she's absolutely right. There's no way to make a billion dollars if you're working by the hour. Another person said to me yesterday, oh, since you've started businesses, you must be a staunch capitalist and think that, you know, capitalism is what provides for everything that's altruistic and and innovative in society. And, you know, both things are interesting statements and lead to this question of, well, if you're a billionaire, are you selfish in some way? Are you against society? Are you taking from society that uh, billions that other people could have had. And of course, the answer is complicated. There's no one answer, but I'll hit both things just to kind of address this topic, which I think is very topical in today's news. Uh, you look at someone like Ken Langone as a great example. Did he earn it or did he take it? Well, the way he, the way he made the billions is Home Depot became a big company and it was a different kind of company. So this is another example of how billionaires think. He took two ideas that seemed unrelated, and he combined them. So Sam Walton with Walmart demonstrated the effectiveness of what's called a big box store. You have this huge mega store that sells everything, and it's easily accessible to everybody in a large radius, as opposed to smaller mom-and-pop stores. And there's criticisms of that model, like the mom and pop stores, are they going out of business? What happens? And so on. But the end of the story is Sam Walton made $100 billion and created millions of jobs and, and so on. And Ken Langone said, well, I'm going to do what he did for regular items, but I'm going to do it for housewares, you know, houseware products and, and home improvement products. So he created Home Depot, which is a big box store. And he combined it with the idea of mom and pop, You know, home product stores that are on your main street or whatever, and that's called what what I call idea sex. So billionaires are very good at idea sex. They'll take two ideas that are completely different and they'll combine them to make a new, unique idea, and that's how they create their billion dollar idea. But the way he really made money was not by kind of taking a little piece of every tool sold in Home Depot. Home Depot went public on the stock exchange. His shares were worth billions of dollars, and He sold those shares and made billions of dollars. So the question is, he he didn't earn it in the classical way of selling something that everyone needs and then putting part of the cash in his pocket. He made the money by selling a piece of this company he created. But the fact of the matter is, the company that he started and created and managed grew to a huge size that it was making, you know, whatever it is, 100 billion in revenues. And Creating all these jobs, creating all this value in society, and people were willing to pay him billions of dollars for the piece of the company he owned because they knew it would keep on growing, so their investment, which again was used to pay for jobs, for pay for growth, pay for innovations by the company, and so on, they knew their investment would grow, so if they put in a billion, they would make two eventually, and he was willing to sell because he's getting older and wanted to give to charity, and so on so He didn't make money by working by the hour or by taking a piece of every item sold. He made money by selling a piece of his company, which is a valid way of making money. If your kids started a lemonade stand in a very popular intersection in your city and everybody driving by is buying lemonade and someone else came along and said, I want that location, they'll pay your kids money. And the deal is your kids have to move out of the location and they'll move in because your kids created value in that intersection and now it's worth that value is worth something so that's it's hard to say your kids are taking rather than earning that money that's the exact same analogy as the Ken Ken Langone Home Depot example is your kids selling the rights to that lemonade stand on that intersection to someone else they create value and they sell that value and then there's the question of well are billionaires not is capitalism not altruistic like you have to rely on government to be altruistic and that question's a bit more complicated so people have for instance made billions on various vices like cigarettes alcohol pornography whatever you know and you can argue whether or not these things are vices but they're they're considered vices but again let's I'll take a, a look at an example I'm involved in so I'm going to call myself a co-founder of this company but the other co-founders might not agree. So there's a company <laughs> that came out. So a friend of mine and I had these conversations like three or four years ago yeah. about what would be a good weapon for law enforcement so they would simply stop killing people by accident. You know, there, there was no... Like there's this, this has been a problem for like twenty years or more, a hundred years. No police officer wakes up and says, "Boy, I can't wait to kill a bunch of innocent people today." Like I, maybe crazy ones do that. That never really happens. But what happens is a police situation is very stressful. Someone is approaching you and not listening to your orders. And by the way, they're usually mentally ill. That's the most common demographic that gets hurt in in these sorts of situations. They're usually mentally ill, so they don't know what you're saying or they're crazy and they're not following your instructions. And they're coming at you. They're within a 20-foot radius. There's laws about this. They have to be within a 21-foot radius. And you have to do something. If you say, put your hands up in the air and they're still coming at you, what do you do? You can either run or you could beat them up which might be very difficult depending on your size and their size, or if they have a knife or a weapon or whatever, or you have to tase them or shoot them. And sometimes you just, in a high stakes situation, you just don't know what to do. And it's really scary. It's scary for the police officers and it's scary for minorities who have been, or the mentally ill who have been hurt and killed this way. And it's so sad, all the stories. So my friend and I, we were studying this area and we were getting video after video of people just, innocent people just being, Hurt. Like I saw this one horrific video of a guy being tased in his, an 18 year old kid being tased in his shower. So you send this, uh, this huge electric voltage in a shower at a mentally ill kid who doesn't even understand what's happening. He's just going to die. He's going to have a heart attack and die. And so we knew there was a need to solve this problem. Like every police agency in the world would want a solution. So we thought of an inventor that we once had worked with, in an, or particularly my friend had worked with in another context. We played around with some ideas. The inventor himself had some ideas. He invented a product. Basically, it's what's called, a, we call it the bolo wrap. It's a weapon that I shoot it at you, and it'll wrap you at the speed of sound with a Kevlar steel cable. So you're like wrapped. You don't feel it at all, but you're wrapped. And and the tighter you try to get out of it, the tighter it gets. So you can't get out of it. And in that time, the police officers in the situation could surround you and put handcuffs you on and arrest you. I love it. No it's like 90s video games. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it's kind of like a Batman, Wonder it Woman kind of thing. Very much. And like I've been wrapped a whole bunch of times and it doesn't hurt, but it does incapacitate you. You cannot... Run or move, even if you're running, they wrap you around the legs, you you stop running. And by the way, people will ask, well, what if you're running away really fast? Okay, that doesn't hurt the police. The police officer is not going to shoot someone normally who's running away because he calls for backup or she calls for backup and backup comes and catches you. But if someone's running towards you, is really where the situation happens. And they're about 20 feet away. If they're three feet away, you can't do this. But if they're 20 feet away, you could do this. So anyway, the company has since gone public, you know. I don't know exactly how many police agencies are looking at it, but maybe the number is in the thousands now, and it's all over the world. The LAPD is testing it out. Hundreds of police stations are testing it out. Thousands more are looking at it. We kind of just launched. I mean, we just went public, I think, in the past year, if I remember correctly. And why didn't the government do this? Why did we do it? We create Every day, the company is called, and some police chief will say, you guys just saved lives today. And police chiefs from all over the world. And even the founder, the co-founder of Taser is now the president of this company. It's called Rap Technologies. And, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, sell it here because, you know, it's not a consumer product. But how come the government with so much this was such a big problem in society and it still is? How come the government didn't solve it with all the taxes we pay? And I'm not anti-taxes either, but you know, this is a type of problem that capitalism does solve. We solved it. Now, we didn't do it for charity, but if we did do it as charitable, it never would have gotten solved because you need money to make these things. And you need money, you pay for innovations and and to get bigger and bigger out of profits. We can't really just do it charitably or else we would have gone broke as much as we wouldn't have have,
1: loved it wouldn't have happened period it 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 just wouldn't have happened and lives
0: literally lives are saved every day now because of this this is one of the more exciting companies i've ever been involved in because i can see this direct connection between let's call it capitalism and altruism and and actually saving lives now the flip side and i've had this conversation with ron paul who's a very libertarian guy and i said to him isn't the role of government to protect those?" who can't be helped. Like you can't be totally libertarian. You have to, government has to help people who are weak in some way. Like maybe they're sick or, or mentally ill or I don't know what else. And he agreed. It's just, you know, where do you, there's an argument where you draw that line. But, you know, I think the government plays a valuable role as well. There's both sides kind of balance the other. So uh, this is a long way of saying nothing about billionaires, but (laughs) but that it is, it is nuanced. You just can't say they're all bad. I would say most of the time, they're doing something altruistic. You know, there was a housing boom in the US and Home Depot helped with that. There was, um, you know, right now there are great companies in solar power, which yes, they'll make a lot of money, but they're helping um, make energy cleaner. Amazon has really helped people get products they need much faster. I mean, if, if you don't believe Amazon's worth it, don't shop there, but everybody shops there. So, you know, again, Healthcare. There's many innovations in healthcare and drugs saving lives. Now, I think that's an industry that can be changed a lot. But certainly, most drugs are made with a profit motive, but they do end up helping you know thousands or millions of people. And you know, I, I think there's nuances, but I would say on the on average, capitalism by providing for certain needs that the government doesn't provide for helps people. Elon Musk is, is for the first time in I don't know ten years or a dozen years the the U.S. is now sending rockets into space because of Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. And, you know, car driving will be cleaner and more efficient and more safe with automated driving that Tesla is working on. So again, is he a bad guy for having billions? Well, look his, look how much good his companies are doing and how many jobs they're providing for. I think and this so on.
1: takes us all the way back to what we were talking about in the beginning with you know do, those are really controversial questions like do billionaires deserve it or are they good or bad and i think it's too simple of a question i think taking that type of question for you know controversy's sake in order to generate you know more views or anything cuz that does make it more uh, i don't know more more eyeballs more earballs get to get on the get on there but otherwise it's not Really, a useful question, I don't think, in that particular way. And yeah, I appreciate very much your perspective on this, but also I appreciate your curiosity and the fact that, like in the case of the bolo wrap, you're not, it's not just about curiosity for you that uh, you take curiosity and actually do something with it on an ongoing basis. So, very much appreciate that. And I just wanted to wrap up with one more question cuz you're the only other person that i have encountered over the age of 25 who runs up or downstairs besides myself so <laughs> i
0: just uh, just yesterday i live on the 7th floor of yeah. my building and uh yesterday i did it so how,
1: how did that start for you i have to know
0: okay 2001 2002 I was investing in the stock market and lost everything, or no, 2000, 2001. I was investing in the stock market, lost everything. This is the first time I went totally broke. I was always broke, like growing up. And you know, after I got out of college, I never had anything in the bank or made everything myself. My parents never gave me anything. They didn't pay for my college, nothing. But then I didn't mind being broke then. I was actually extremely happy being broke then. But then after you make money and then you go broke, you're like, oh my God, that... I just won the lottery ticket, and I blew it, and I am i don't know how to do anything, and I'm a wreck, and I can't pay for my kids, I'm going to lose my home, blah, blah, blah. And I read this book, I can't even remember who wrote it, it was by some stock trader, and he said, after he went broke, and he was all depressed and everything, he started running up and down the stairs, and so just ever since then, it's been almost 20 years ago, I've been doing the same thing. So it kind of has a, a blasé answer, but that really is the truth. But a core to my philosophy of quote unquote choosing yourself is that no one else but me is gonna make me healthy. Like I can't just go to the doctor and get healthy. Doctors will will give you pills and perform surgery, but they're not gonna really make you stronger and healthier and and improve your heart and and your breathing and 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 your brain and so on you have to do that yourself so you either have to go to the gym or you have to do so- something you have to eat well you have to sleep 8 hours a day for most people and you have to you kind of have to get some cardio and cardio is like a natural antidepressant and i hate running i hate cardio i don't run but the one thing i'm able to do is i'll run up and down the staircases and I'll walk as much as I can during the day. And, you know, it's some days it's the only way I get exercise. And I've just, I actually have recently started going to the gym, although I have to cancel a lot because I do lots of podcasts and stuff. But um, going, when I go in my building, there's no excuse for me not to have a little bit of cardio by running up the stairs. That
1: is, <laughs> that is fantastic. I started when I was eight or 10, I don't even remember, but uh, just from the perspective of, hey, why don't adults run up the stairs? Why do you never see adults run up the stairs? And I just thought it was super fun. So I've just been doing it ever since. I've resolved that I was never going to stop.
0: Yeah, you know, and you've inspired, like sometimes for me, it's about 50-50, but you've inspired me that I should do it more like 100%. <laughs> and like, for, for instance, yesterday, I was on the phone with somebody when I was walking to my building. So I didn't want to take the chance that the elevator would cut us off. So, that, so I ran up the stairs to keep staying on the phone. And that happens roughly like fifty to seventy percent of the time. So that's also a, a, a big excuse for me to run up the stairs. But you've inspired me to, to, to keep doing it a hundred percent of the time.
1: James, this has been a super fun conversation. I appreciate you making the time and taking the time. And with the new book, where can people get that?
0: Script, Scribd, S C R I B D. And you know, again, for me that was an experience. I've never published that. I've published with every major publisher. Yeah. I've also self published. Done everything from a novel to a children's book to a comic book to finance books to nonfiction books. This is a nonfiction book. And I wanted to, script. by the way, I'm an investor in. I'm not trying to push it because my investment's tiny. I did it like 10 years ago. I, I it's not, It wasn't a factor in my decision. But I think it's interesting what they're doing, being the Netflix for books and making reading more accessible. And I like the fact that I was just flattered that they asked me to do one of their first Originals, and I decided that this book that I was initially thinking of self-publishing on Amazon, I they asked me to do it through them, and I thought it was an interesting experiment because they have so many subscribers, and I did it, and it seems to be working well, and I, and I learned a lot in the process. One reason you should write a book is for anybody is not that you're an expert, is that but that you learn. So I wrote a book once called The Power of No not because I'm such a great expert at saying the word no to people, but because I wanted to learn more about why I was horrible at saying no. It is and forced do learning. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it forces you to learn and then you document your experience learning and then people can take from it what they will, which is hopefully getting a little better at doing something that's very difficult. But I appreciate you inviting me on the podcast and uh, I got to take voice lessons or something, get a better radio voice, a better podcast voice. Hey, if you love that conversation,
1: I actually want to share with you the conversation before the interview. It's here in just a second. And after you hear the the music die down, then guess what? You get to hear our conversation before the conversation. Normally, we don't always share stuff like that, but we usually do leave Easter eggs all throughout the podcast and after the podcast. You may have noticed that, but you know what? Some people don't listen to the end, so you're missing out. Stay tuned for that here in just a second. Right now, though, I wanted to invite you to check out our signature coaching program. If you are a high performer and you've been thinking about making a change in your career, whether it's moving up the ladder, going to a different company, different industry, our personalized one-on-one custom coaching is made to fit you and your circumstance. You'll work with your coach to identify exactly what your goals are and what really creates an amazing career for you, an amazing set of next steps, and we'll develop a step-by-step plan for you to reach that goal. Your coach will be with you to guide you every single step along the way. Best way to find out if Signature Coaching is right for you is to schedule a conversation with our Director of Client and Student Success, and we'll help you figure out what's the very best way that we can help. Just... Send me an email, by the way, <laughs> go ahead and put conversation in the subject line, send an email to Scott at happened And when you put conversation in the subject line, I'll know to connect you up with my team and we'll work together to figure out the very best way that we can help because, you know, that's what we do.
0: You have like a radio voice. Jay, is there any kind of audio switch I can do here to make my voice sound like I'm a radio announcer? <laughs> we can like get some filters ra- in
1: there. Oh yeah. Have you
0: ever been a radio announcer or something? I
1: have not, but ever since I hit puberty, I've been told that again and again. But you know, radio does not make great money as far as things go, and uh, I love podcasting as it turns out. So this is going to work out.
0: By the way, we should be recording this because that was just a, that was a good uh, that was good for your podcast right there. I am
1: well, but, recording it, so it okay. works out also.
0: Yeah, keep, keep this on. Now, now, my, my goal is always to never edit. But I'm going to try to do your voice because this is uh, – I just – I love the radio voice sound.
1: I, I want to hear it.
0: This is James Altucher, and you're listening to Scott Barlow. Uh, <laughs> Scott – I can't do it because that, there's that extra velvety undertone to the voice. Like I just sound like I'm whining, <laughs> and and you have this like authoritative like – Ladies and gentlemen the, the US has been invaded like you can you can get away with that